Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, February the 9th, 2021. This is episode 2822 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to have a, a topic roundtable today. This is some listener feedback and questions, and it's also just some stuff I want to talk about. Um, I've done a lot of feedback shows over the years. It seems that when I do them as a blend, where I have some questions I'm responding to, and some that are just topics that I've picked of the day, uh, those seem to be really a big hit. I'll tell you what was a big hit, bigger than I thought it would be. I wasn't even sure if I did a good enough job on it yesterday, but yesterday's show, um, on the death of the paradigms, I think I got really a lot of people thinking, we're going to talk a little bit in that vein today on a couple different points, but we have a ton of stuff to cover today. I'm going to lead off with a great quote by, of all people, Bob Dylan, uh, that really applies to a lot of what's being said right now. And uh, a little bit I'll tell you about the, the crayfish have arrived. They've, they've, they've arrived. I'll tell you about my uh, marble crayfish, and we'll see where this goes. How about a private search engine? I know what you're thinking, duck, duck, go. Nope. Search engine keeps you everything private, is a, on, a, on a distributed blockchain running on nodes so it can't be harassed or taken down or whatever by the government so it's a search engine that works on a blockchain like a cryptocurrency has its own native token and when you use it as long as you create an account and log in they pay you a little bit in their own cryptocurrency every day just to use their search engine instead of google which spies on you and reports you to the government does that sound like a thing that should exist it does It's actually been around a while, but I just found out about it. Um, and so far, I have to say the search results are better than the results I get from DuckDuckGo. Every once in a while, I'm using DuckDuckGo to find something, and I'm like, ah! and I have to, so we'll tell you all about that. And I have to go over to Google and get spied on, and uh, I run uh, VPNs, I run Tor, depending on what I'm doing, but still, I just, I don't like using the beast when I don't have to. Uh, and getting paid to search, which I'm going to do anyway, yeah. It's not a lot of money, but it's uh, it's free, and it's crypto. Yeah, um, I have a question about small space growing and community gardening. Is it worth at this point? And I want to talk about something one of my good friends keeps saying that I totally disagree with when I when we get to that subject. Um, I have a question on replacing sugary treats when you're on keto. You can do this. There's some real danger here, though, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, There's a time for this and there's a time not for this. I'll just put it that way. How do you get insurance on your homestead for side hustles like selling eggs and stuff like that? Should you even bother? Uh, how do you make that decision? I'll tell you my thoughts on it. Pre -pre Prepping when you're going to move soon. Um, I can tell you having moved twice as a full-on prepper, it sucks. And we'll talk a little bit about what to do if you plan to move soon. Dealing with garden thieves. It's not a topic that comes up often, but it does come up, and it's more common than I think people think. There's some pretty easy ways to deal with this. Um, understanding winter egg production drop in ducks and chickens, and a question a person has about a hatchery they're working with. Using coffee grounds for fertility, and I'm going to finish today with a segment called Never Forget That Problems Are Opportunities. There's a lot of bad shit coming, and that makes me excited. I, 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 it's not some weird masochistic thing. 
It's that I understand the concept that the greatest way to profit is to provide solutions to problems. That's always been the case. That's why capitalism works as a system. All right, with that, let's start off with our quote of the day. This is by Bob Dylan, and it's a very simple quote, one-liner. Don't criticize what you can't understand. Don't criticize what you can't understand. There, there is no current subject that people do this more with right now than cryptocurrency. And I would change Mr. Dillon's quote for as great a guy as he was. Right? Don't criticize what you don't understand instead of can't. Most people are criticizing something they don't understand, but it doesn't mean they can't understand it. Now, depends on how you use the word, because we talked about this yesterday. There's can't understand is in you will never understand it. It's impossible for you to understand it. It's beyond your level of intelligence, and some things are beyond anybody's level of intelligence, right? There's, there's some things that if we could understand everything, we'd have the answer to everything, and we don't, right? So there is no doubt that a person like Albert Einstein could understand things that I can't understand. So there's, there's, there's that. But then there is, you can't understand it because you're not ready to understand it, or you don't want to, and therefore you've created your own mental block. You've created your own form of cognitive dissonance shield. Cryptocurrency is that. And I'll tell you when I know someone is doing this when it comes to cryptocurrency. They'll put up a video or an article or a post or a comment about why they don't have cryptocurrency. And then, now see, the thing is, I don't like it, fine. I don't believe in it, fine, whatever. When they go to explain why, that's when you go, so you don't know what the F you're talking about. You have no idea, because the, the justification they give is divorced from reality to like the nth degree. And there's so much of this in the world today, not just with cryptocurrency, and so many things. I, I, I've had dear friends, close associates I've tried to explain things to. And they fall back on this concept of defending their desire to not know in some way. When I was trying to explain to people, including close personal friends, why hydroxychloroquine works, how hydroxychloroquine works, right? Those doctors came out, those frontline doctors eventually came out, and all they, all those people could fixate on was that, that, that doctor from Jamaica or Nigeria or whatever, she's crazy. She believes in demons. Okay, what does that have to do with hydroxychloroquine? And the answer is nothing, but that would they would grab onto that. And they would criticize, they didn't want to understand it, and hence they could not understand it. And therefore, the criticism that they, that they criticize it with, right, the, the words which they choose to criticize it with, demonstrate their ignorance. Now, what's funny is some of these people have said, Jack, have you heard about this stuff called Q-certain? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, Q-certain, yeah, I've heard about, yeah, um, There's like doctors now, and they say that like it can help prevent COVID. Yeah. Do you know when I started putting that information out? No. Uh, April of 2020. Oh. Do you know why it works? Well, no. Oh, okay. Well, you have to take it with zinc. Oh, okay. Right? And it works because it's an ionophore for zinc. Okay. Do you know how I figured that out? Uh-uh. Well, remember hydroxychloroquine. Turns out hydroxychloroquine is an ionophore for zinc. So when they shut that down so people couldn't use it, I went out and found the, the medical research that indicated that this substance also formed an ionophore for zinc to get it into the cells. And then they look all confused and angry. Because you've chosen to criticize what you can't understand. And therefore, when you have your ignorance cleared, you, uh, cured, you don't like it. 
to the point where you'll actually prevent it from happening. But boy, let me tell you, it's one thing to criticize something. It's another thing to criticize something with claims as though they are facts that are completely counter to reality. And it, anybody that's informed sees that. And all I can think is, if you don't know about something, don't go speaking about it. And if you want to know how to be known as a great speaker who seems well-informed, it's the best advice I can give you. It's the other side of it. Well, here's, here's an example of a real story. My good friend Nick Ferguson is going to be here this evening. He's in town for a couple of days. He's going to stay here. Nick and I were doing a, a, a walk and talk in the woods one day with some students. And we're like, well, this plant does this, and this plant does that, and this plant does this, and this plant does that. This plant over here is toxic. You shouldn't use it, but you can do this with it. And finally, one of the students said, wait a minute. How do you guys know, like, every plant in these woods? Nick and I had the immediate same thought, like, oh, we're idiots. We don't know, we don't know anything. We looked at each other, and we just had this stupid Cheshire cat shit-eating grin on both of our faces. And I'm like, well, there's, like, a couple hundred species of plants here. We just talked to you about the dozen or so that we know well. There's like tons, like if you just start picking stuff out and go, what's this? I don't know. And we can figure it out. We can make some guesses or whatever. But the reason that you see us as being intelligent is we speak about that which we know. So if that makes you appear intelligent, what does it make you seem like when you speak about that which you do not know as though you do know it? Well, to the informed, it makes you look like a dumbass. So... All of that to get right back to the one sentence from Bob Dylan. Don't criticize what you can't understand, and maybe don't criticize what you have failed to understand or do not yet understand would be a better way to phrase it. All right. With that, let's dig into this. Um, little thing about my crayfish. So I told you guys about this, I think, a week ago or so. There's this crayfish called the marbled crayfish, also known as like the Marl Krebs crayfish, which is German for marble crayfish. And they're a cool little critter, and they have this funky trait about them. There's some kind of mutation. Now, every time you bring up something like this, people, oh my God, if it gets in the wild, stop, breathe. You know, don't criticize what you don't understand. First of all, I'm not out with a slingshot launching these things into Lake Louisville, okay? Relax. So this crayfish is native to the United States of America. The, the particular form we're calling the marble crayfish experienced some sort of mutation where it basically became a cloning crayfish. It's, it's, they're all female, and they also produce fertile eggs. So they bury and produce, and then the offspring are the same, and they bury and produce. Bury means they put eggs on, their, on themselves, on their tail. And um, I, I don't think we should be setting these things free, but for all the hysteria, they've never been a problem anywhere. They've never actually even been found in the wild. And if you think about it, You're talking about a critter that in the United States of America is a primary food source of game fish, right? So the idea that this is going to have somehow disrupt the entire ecosystem, I'm not real worried about that. But again, I'm not setting them free. Just for those of you that freak out when you hear some of the stuff I work with, I am at least five miles from the nearest surface water, Okay. Um, I would say there's one pond that some guy put in kind of like I did with like a fake liner and stuff like that that's about three miles away. Otherwise, we're five miles from any surface water. So I'm not real concerned about these guys. They don't have wings. But um, 
they do reproduce well, and they would do they should do really well on a waste stream like duck affluent water. So these are the ones that are going to go in my new duck feed system. It's going to be growing a water plant. It's going to be growing the crayfish. Going to be growing minnows. Going to be growing uh, goldfish. Going to be growing trees. Going to be growing uh, grain. The whole the whole integrated function stacking on steroids system. I put out a video on. So they showed up today, and the box was really, really, really wet. It's never good when you order from a fish place and the box is wet. I opened the box up, and they did a really good job of packaging. Because these guys tend to get along most of the time. But if you put them in a bag together and they can't get away from each other, you got a different situation. So they were individually packed. Two of the bags were leaking. They're pretty small. One was completely leaked. One was like half leaked. The one that was completely leaked was fine. The one that was half leaked was fine too, but he was the one I was more worried about because, you know, the air came out of the bag, right? Well, they were all fine. I put them all in their little tank that I set up for them. It's a pretty cool tank. I'll put some pictures up later this week. But basically, I took a bunch of my native limestone, and I stacked it on top of this row of uh, one-inch PVC pipe. So they immediately all, like, picked a hole to go into. It worked out perfectly. And I've heard they get along most of the time, except when you feed them. And it's pretty, it's pretty hysterical. I'll have to do some video of this. But when I broke up some pieces of uh, algae wafer and dropped it in there, that's when they kind of had some conflict and fighting. And what they would do is once one would get a piece... It would just haul ass with it and go hide and eat. So I think they'll work out in there together. My intention is to get most of them out of that tank as soon as the system is built and stabilized to where they'll be okay in there. But right now they're kind of in this little 10-gallon tank as a reserve. Anyway, they're a pretty cool critter. And I'd love to hear from anybody that's worked with them at all. And one of the coolest things, I was the, the, the company I got them from is called the Shrimp Farm. Obviously they have things other than shrimp if they have crayfish. But it's called the Shrimp Farm. And they were marketed as juveniles. They were probably a third of the price that anybody else was selling them for. And I guess they're juveniles because they're not full grown yet. They're about two inches long. But they're two inches long. I figured juveniles would be like, you know, three quarters of an inch or something like the size of a shrimp. One of them's already got berries on it. So one of them's already about to throw um, babies which is a great head start for me in getting the system up and running because I'm hoping by the end of the season that it's heavily, heavily stocked, uh, starting with only 10. So just if you if you want to try using these in an aquaponics system, in a fish tank system, something like that, check out the shrimp farm. Uh, I have no affiliation with them or anything like that, but uh, they did a good job. Don't let the fact that a couple bags leaked a little bit. I've ordered from these guys before. It's probably their crayfish. They have pointy claws. I mean... You can only do so much, and the beauty is as long as they stay damp, crayfish will be fine. Uh, next up, I want to talk to you about this private search engine I just found out. I think, I think that I found it on MeWe. I'm pretty sure that's where I found it. Um, but it is called uh, PreSearch, P-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H. And uh, it's at, the, the, the main website is PreSearch.org. And the search engine is at engine.presearch.org. And what you're going to want to do if you're going to start using it is you're going to want to create an account. And when you create it, this is another, remember I've said things like, if you're going to build a website, right, or a service where cryptocurrency is used in it, like Steam was supposed to be, it shouldn't be you go over here and set up an account here. Then you go over here and you set this weird wallet up over here. And then you got to do some sort of computer programming bullshit to get the two to meld together. 
it should be like library slash Odyssey. That's why I fell in love with it immediately. You make an account, you have a wallet you can receive and send cryptocurrency from. It's your own cryptocurrency. It's your own native currency. It shouldn't be that hard. You're the one that built it. Apparently, the people at Presearch need to be working with the people over at Library Odyssey. Maybe I need to introduce uh, Jeremy Kaufman to this service, if he's aware of it. Because to me, I'm looking to completely stack all my online function into things that only are blockchain. I recently got an invitation, for instance, to a new social media thing called Clubhouse from two members of this audience that both are involved with social media, YouTube production, etc., that I have tremendous respect for. And they said, this thing is great. It has, it has um, interaction like I've never seen. Feedback, like the, 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 the user connection is huge. And it's not even that big yet. It's only available by invite. Here's an invite. Come on over. And I said, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. And my reasoning was, at this point in my career and in my life, with the social capital that I have, Everything that I choose to use to promote my brand, myself, my business, my material is an investment. And it's a significant investment. And right now I am using services. Some of them are not yet on blockchain. Like MeWe is the best Facebook alternative I've found so far, but it's not on blockchain. I'm already using it. I've already made the investment. I'm not going to walk away from it. If Parler comes back, if my account's still there, if my seven, 8,000 followers, whatever is still there, I'll start posting to it again. But I'm not ever going to start building anything on top of anything again ever that anybody can pull the plug on. If the large corporate giants can pull the plug on it, I'm not putting my investment there. So I'm looking to have video platform that that's true about that works and does what it's supposed to do. Because you can take bit shoot, and I call it like freaking shit poop is what it is. It's a terrible service. And the other one is sort of like it. I can't think of what it's called now. They both suck. Like Odyssey actually works, and it does everything it's supposed to do. This search engine, now I have had searches fail, like maybe it's being, like so, there's a lot of press came out of yesterday. Maybe it got hit. Uh, maybe they weren't quite ready for it yet, but they... Uh, It's working fine today. And you can earn four pre-tokens, P-R-E is the, the, the token, a day uh, by doing searches. And I think it's like you earn a, earn a quarter of one per search. So you make, what, 12 searches, you get your maximum, something like I don't remember exactly what it is. It's something like that. But if, you, if you're online all day, And you run searches routinely throughout the day. It's not even like you have to make a conscious effort to do that. So I, I signed up for it last night. I've used it a couple times today. I'm sitting here looking at my little wallet. 6.5 pre are in it. And um, I'm going to keep using it. And what I'm hoping is over time that there will be a collection where I can say, here are the things that I put all my effort into and that I use on my daily basis. And as far as... Video, I'm settled. It will take a lot to move me out of the, the world of Odyssey right now. It is phenomenal. Any of its problems, the beauty that I've seen with Odyssey, anything that didn't quite work right keeps getting better, not worse. And that's, that's all you can ever ask from anybody. I think this search engine might be that for search engines. I love the concept of DuckDuckGo. I love the commitment to it. The search results are lackluster at times. 
Pre-search seems to look a lot like Google as far as how it breaks things out and gives you immediate answers and things like that. Um, and it allows you straight from pre-search when you can't find what you're looking for to use other search engines. It has plugins that go into browsers, etc. And again, once you're logged in, every time you search, you make a little bit of pre. There's some other stuff to it that I don't know that much about yet. But again, it's presearch.org. And uh, one of the things they do have is as you develop uh, a wallet full of this pre-coin, and you can buy it as well, and you can exchange it. It's I think it trades for something like $0.08 cents a coin. So, yeah, if you get your maximum a day, it's $0.32, cents, but it's $0.32 cents you didn't have in cryptocurrency. Um, but as you amass more or buy more, you can actually stake it to basically buy an ad. And I don't know how they say they don't know how long they're going to let that run, maybe half of the year or something like that. But if you have enough, you stake your, your pre and you don't spend it. You don't lose it. It's not like pay per click. It's you just own that ad in return for holding your money there for a time. I think they're going to go to a PPC model eventually. And I think they're going to have ways you can monetize pay per click by being the person staking it and having the rights to sell it. That's what it seems like is going to happen. Anyway, it's very exciting. It works. That's always my thing first. Does it work? Because there's so many crypto projects. We're going to do this, man, and we're going to do that. It's going to be like a gainer and a half twist with Bitcoin added on the side. It's going to be awesome. It's going to revolutionize the electrical billing industry or whatever. I want to see shit work. Like you, People do these giant IPOs or ICOs, actually. They, they raise all kinds of funding to do something, and then two years later, they're still talking about it. Or they're not talking about it, but it's not done. I like to see a project go, oh, this is what it does, here it is. That impresses me. This works. Um, since it doesn't cost any money to use it, since you can just try it, I, I give you my full endorsement to give it a shot. Okay. Um, next up, I have an interesting question here, and it lets me say something about something my good friend, who I have tremendous respect for, but I totally disagree with this mindset Uh, Curtis Stone has been saying several times recently while I've been on the air with him in various locations. This comes from Orfer, and he says, I'm fairly new to TSP. I'm really interested in starting a garden. The problem is I live in a small apartment. I have a tiny patio at ground level that's open to the world, no fence, no gate. I have a few containers growing culinary herbs and a large aloe, but I want to get something bigger going. Uh, the, pro um, the city I live in, in North Texas, has a community garden that I could get a plot in. There would be requirements to volunteer on the common space, maintenance rules about what you can grow and how tall so you don't block sun from adjoining plots, etc. I'm thinking it would be worth starting a garden there so I can learn about North Texas climate and plant preferences. So then what, when, if I get a place with some land, I, I have... Some I would have covered some of the learning curve. Am I missing anything in this plan, or is it a waste of time since I'm starting from scratch at a future homestead? Thanks for creating TSP and all the information shared with us. Or for okay, so here's what I've heard Curtis say, and I, I need to speak on this because I don't want my silence to be read as endorsement, and I don't want anybody discouraged from trying. He's basically said if you're going to grow small like on a backyard garden or a little community garden or something, at this point, don't even bother. And as much as I love Curtis, he's gone off the deep end with the concept of collapse. And this is when you're in this space, it's where it happens to everybody at some point for some period of time. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not a criticism. It's a disagreement. This idea 
that when it collapses, whatever people mean when they say that in their mind, because you ask 10 people that all agree it's going to all collapse, what it looks like, none of them have the same description, that all of a sudden, all these people who don't know anything about where food comes from are just going to start raiding everybody's gardens and every farm that's close to town or whatever is insane. Right? It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, it's, it's not, most of the people you're worried about wouldn't know what they were looking at, even though we're going to have a, we're going to have a little bit on, on, on people stealing vegetables here in a bit. Like that does happen. But the idea that you should let that prevent you from acting is a mistake. And the idea that you shouldn't bother with small spaces is, is, is wrong. And the justification given here by Orfer in, I want to learn, is is one of many things. But when it comes to something like community gardening, it's even at a higher level. And, and, and here's why. When you have bad shit happen, the more security you have is related to the more number of people that you know, that you can ask for help from, and you can provide help back to. We call that community. The name of the garden is what? Community garden. So if you go and you are managing a plot at a community garden, you're participating in common area work with other people that are there, you now are part of a community of people who want to garden. That alone is worth doing this. That alone means it might be worth doing this for a person who doesn't need it. Going to a place like that, meeting people, and learning from each other. The way we learn in gardening, primarily, is we read things, and we, we come to conclusions based on what we read or we watch. Then we go plant things, and then we learn a very, very valuable lesson. Plants don't read books. Plants don't watch YouTube videos. Plants don't give a shit what some guy in New Jersey said about how easy it is to grow a watermelon. I mean, they don't care. Pests... They live in a place where the guy said they don't live, don't care that he said they don't live there. Pests that are not supposed to be in their pest cycle in August don't have calendars. And when they're in their pest cycle in August, even though everybody said, well, all the squash bugs will be gone by then, I don't know who came up with this idea, but whoever it is was wrong, and again, the, the pest can't read. The pest doesn't have a calendar. Right? The pest acts based on when the temperature is right and when it can go out and do its thing. And what's available. And when we as gardeners shift production cycles and we decided, hey, this pest is most active in July, well, maybe that's because that's when we had the, the particular vegetation at the particular point that made the pest show up. And when we push that further out, it's not that it's not a valid strategy. It's that it doesn't always work. Sometimes the pest cycle shifts with our strategy. Right? So you don't know any of that. So the way you come at this is you go out and you garden. You do the best you can getting started. You listen to shows like mine. You go listen to people like Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. You listen to Jeff Lawton, whatever. And you go give it a shot. And then what happens? You make mistakes. Sometimes they're not even more accurately mistakes. They're just, they're not right for the time and place that you're in. And then things don't work. And then you learn from that. And you adjust. And you try again. And over time, you develop a core group of things that you can reliably produce, right? 
And somebody telling you in Canada how easy it is to grow potatoes when you're in Texas, you're going to find out that they don't know anything about growing potatoes in Texas. Right? They don't, have, they don't know anything about it. They have no idea what it takes to do what you're doing where you are. And to be fair, you could get very good at what you're doing, and you could start telling them what they should be doing, and you have no idea how to do that thing up there. This is very regional. So you learn through error. Guess what happens when you get together with a bunch of people trying to do the same thing in the same place? You get a lot more errors a lot more quickly, and therefore you get a lot more results and a lot more feedback and a lot more adaptation. And it's very likely that you're going to go in and say, well, I want to do this. And a guy's going to be like, we all did that last year and everything died. Here's what we're doing this year and it's working. So I think there's incredible value in community gardens from the learning curve and the community itself. I also think there's incredible value from small space growing, indoor growing. I don't care what it is. And I think that whenever you hear somebody criticize something, you should ask if they've done it. Have they done this? And if you have a person criticizing small space growing that's ever, all they've ever done is kind of spin farming and up, it's not that they're not smart. It's they haven't done the thing you're doing. And therefore, they're talking about something they can't possibly understand because I don't believe that you can truly understand something until you've done it. Or at least you've been part of doing it. You've, you've been involved with it on some level. Theory will never be sufficient without practice. And so I think getting your feet wet in any way in every place possible is a good idea. And I don't think that this is a time to give in to fear and to make decisions not to act because it might not be worth it. If you're going to spend $75,000 and that's your life savings to invest in something and that is your thing you're afraid to do, you probably should be afraid to do it. No eggs all in one basket, and we don't invest in things we don't understand. We need to be careful about making decisions like that because the consequences are severe. What is the consequences of setting up a hydroponic system in your house? You're out three, four hundred bucks. If you can't grow that much food, you're not doing it right. You'll figure it out. What are the consequences of paying 25 bucks a month or whatever to have a community garden plot at a local church? Right. What are the consequences of, hey, why don't I uh, go talk to somebody about maybe doing some gardening on their patio? What, what are the consequences? When you have something that has almost no risk and any potential return and you're going to learn something from it, you should probably give it a shot. That's all I'm saying. And please be careful listening to people. Right now there's a lot of fear being ginned up, a lot of fear that the whole thing is going to come crashing down, and I think it will come crashing down. But I also, we just talked yesterday about what collapses actually mean. And they, they never mean what these people say that they mean. And again, very well-meaning people get caught up in this fear. And the closer you get to it, the easier it is for it to happen. I've seen good people over the years, some get caught up in it for a while and they kind of process through it and they come out with a new view and it actually strengthens their understanding and knowledge as a prepper and as a homesteader. Some people go down in that hole and it's like the dark side, they never come out. And they're just waiting for it to happen. And a lot of people, again, they have to have it for a period. And I have to say, I did. And my probably, my most alarmist point that I was ever in, where you guys 
knew me and heard from me was like in my first year or two. And, and the funny thing that happened for me, and I don't know why this doesn't happen to others, the more I did, the less concerned I became. But it seems like some people, the more they do, the more concerned they become. And I don't know if it's because they go so all in with everything into it that they feel the need to justify it. I'm not sure. But I, I, I do think we're in for some very hard times this year. But I'll save my thoughts about why that's an opportunity for the end. Um, next up, I have a question here that I, I'm always very tepid when I answer it because I think it could lead people down the wrong place if you just give them an answer. Like, here, go make this. Um, but James says, what can I eat on keto to replace a sugary treat? I've been doing keto, and the best thing I've found to replace sugary treats is sugar-free Coke. Yeah, don't drink that shit. That's toxic poison, dude. Um, <laughs> I never ate a lot of sugar before keto, but I started drinking Coke and a bit of a treat. It really hit the spot. turned into an unwanted and worrying habit. I know you get Lily's chocolate, but it's super expensive in the UK. Do you have any other suggestions for sweet things to eat on keto? So here's my initial disclaimer. You probably shouldn't do this until you don't need to. If you feel the need for something sweet, you probably shouldn't do anything. Because what will inevitably happen is you will end up finding a couple dozen things that fill this niche... And it's oh, just one of these and just one of those. But it'll be long, you know, over the long haul. It's one here and one there, but it's almost every day that you're putting things into your body that, yes, are technically low-carb, high-fat, but they're not generally the best thing for you nutritionally. And they tend to put you well over your carb limit because, well, it's only two carbs, but you ate four of them, that's eight. You only have 20 a day. And you're ignoring all the carbs you ate all day long that were part of your regular keto diet. And then since you're eating keto, you've jacked up your calories. Because any of these sweets, treats, etc. are going to be high in fat. And then the next thing that you know, you're putting weight on when you think you should be losing weight. And it happens. I've seen it over and over and over again. And I've not just seen it with sweets. I've seen it with like fat bombs and you know pizza balls and all of that stuff we gotta uh, fry you know f making low carb batters and fry breadings and stuff like that like all of this stuff can be overdone <sighs> to me one of the best things that you can use to hit a sweet tooth and it is very low carb if we don't eat 400 of them is strawberries Strawberry is all natural. It's not even really a fruit. It's technically a stem. If you that's what they call it, strawberry, like straw, isn't a straw, like the thing that's left over, the stem on wheat, strawberry. That's where it comes from. The fruit of the strawberry is actually the little bitty seeds. That's the fruit. Um, the strawberry, and if it's not sweet enough for you as it comes, the Lakanto um, sugar substitute, which is zero impact on 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 carbohydrates and on on calories as well. And just a small amount on strawberries. That's pr and then real whipped cream. Not the whipped cream that comes in a can. Not a tub of Cool Whip. Real heavy whipping cream. Whip up as much as you need for using at that time. Right? I mean, you throw it in a little blender or something and make whipped cream. And, and that's 
that's probably the best thing because number one, it's all natural, and number two, it's very low carb, and we're not using a substitution except for the Lakanto, which we don't really need. Next up would be if you, Lakanto makes some some zero calorie, zero carb syrups using uh, the erythritol and monk fruit sweetener mix. They make it in a caramel, they make it in a vanilla, and they make it in a couple other ones. A sparkling water with a little bit of that replaces your shitty Diet Coke. Your Diet Coke is made with chemicals that do not belong in your body infinity. Okay, Why the Diet uh, Coke companies, right, all of the soda companies that do diet products, have not shifted to things like stevia, uh, monk fruit, erythritol. I don't know why they stick with these outdated sweeteners, except that I do think there's a, 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 an unholy cabal between the food corporations and the medical corporations because the food causes sickness. And, and the same people that own these corporations own the other ones. So I, maybe it's that. I don't know. I don't want to see a conspiracy under every rock, but it sure feels that way. But that would give you control on how much and when. And that might be a bit expensive in the U.K., given these little lilies is. But this is something that a bottle of it should last a really, really long time. Those are kind of my two that I can give you the best deal with. Uh, you know, I, I deal with. The other thing would be if you come up with something like a lily's chocolate, Uh, melting that down with a little bit of coconut oil in it to smooth it out and then make something with that. Like get ice trays or silicon molds and put a couple of nuts in there. And kind of your best nuts for low carb are like almonds, so you don't want to go too high, too much omega-6, uh, pecan. Pecan, um, maybe a couple, and this is per each, you know, like maybe one one almond, one pecan, half a pecan, you know, half pecan half, um, and a couple, like, pumpkin seeds. And then use your chocolate uh, with that. All of those types of things can be done. But, boy, you, you see, you say treat, and then the next words out of your mouth is it turned into an unwanted and worrying habit. And that's my problem here. This is an amazing thing that happens if you'll do keto. For real, for like 60 days. 60 days, don't do any of this shit. No keto treats, no chaffles, no cheese bomb balls or whatever, no keto gummies, no, just nothing but whole foods and keep your macros right for 60 days. You'll decide, I'm going to go ahead and have me a brownie or whatever it is, right? Um, Fat Snacks, by the way, makes some pretty good stuff like this. I don't know, again, UK, I don't know if you can get them. But Fat Snacks is a pretty good place, uh, and it's F-A-T-S-N-A-X, Fat Snacks. Uh, they have little brownie bites and stuff like that. And as long as you, like, eat one or whatever, you're good. Um, those are things that you can have. But when you go ahead and have one, after going a good two months, you're like, eh. It's not that big a deal anymore. And when you eat something that truly is sweet and sugary, you're like, that's horrible. That's awful. It's amazing how little sweetener it takes now to turn me off. I used to be big on, I used liquid stevia in my tea. And I would do like two drops of stevia in a, in a fairly large cup of herbal tea. 
I can do one now, and I almost wish there was a way to get half a drop. If I accidentally put a second drop in there, it, it tastes like somebody dumped a half pound of sugar in it. What's happened is that hum we have damaged our taste buds by overexposing them to things that are not natural, that don't exist in nature for so long that we don't have a perception. We've overdone our tolerance to sugar. And it, it, in my experience, it, it varies by people. I, you know, I'm not going to say that everybody's going to do it in 60 days or everybody needs 60 days. But in my experience, for the most people, about 60 days with none of it. No, for 60 days. No, you could do any. You go to prison for 60 days. And when you come back after that in small things here and there, it won't take much. And you'll start tasting flavors you didn't know were there. You'll start sensing things that you didn't know was there. And I don't think it's like going blind so your other senses are, senses are heightened. I think it is you stop. It's totally different. It's like you stop dumbing down your senses. And this happens with all of our senses. Here's an example. When I worked in, in um, Frisco, Texas, and uh, I moved to a different part of our office, uh, we started a new team, and I kind of wanted to have overwatch of them. When I sat down in a cubicle the first time, and I realized there was like an air conditioner in, in the background, and it was like, that's what it sounded like. It's just like a just awful, horrific whistling. And I started talking to some of the people that sat near there, and I'm like, don't you hear that? They're like, what? And I was convinced that this wasn't going to work. I was going to have to move back to my other office. There was no way I could stay out on the floor with my people like I wanted to if this was the place I was going to have to be. I could not be near this thing. And within a week, I never noticed it again. I would have to think about it and sit there and go, oh, there it is. Because since you're, that, that, that particular thing is hit with that particular stimulus, as long as it's not actually painful, eventually the stimulus deadens the receptor to where you don't receive, you, you don't, you build a tolerance to it. And since it's not useful to you, it gets relegated into, eh, you don't need to say So what is the reason? that we have such a heightened appreciation of sweetness, it's because it's rare in nature. It's rare in nature. And I know you can think about all the fruits and stuff, but if you go to before we selectively bred everything into its current form, and if you go to pure nature, you go to something really super high in diversity, right? Because a lot of ecosystems, there's not even a lot of diversity, but super high in diversity, like the eastern United States woods, What in that that we didn't grow for ourselves is extremely sweet? I'd say the sweetest thing you can find, highest sugar content you can find in that native ecosystem is persimmons. And only at the peak of their ripeness, right before they spoil. That would be the sweetest thing you can find. Okay, so that you can get for a couple weeks in, in the beginning of winter. Right? That's, that's what you can get. Now think of how much energy is in there right as you're going into winter. And why would your body be designed to eat as much of that as you can to get you through what's coming, right? Now, what else is really sweet? We talked about strawberries. There's wild strawberries in those woods. They're not that sweet. And they're, they're tiny. We'll just throw those out. Blueberries can be sweetish. And that might make us eat a lot. And blackberries. Those will be your other two that are pretty damn sweet that are available there. When do those come out? Spring. What's happening in spring? 
were coming out of the winter Darth. And then what? What else is really sweet in the eastern woods? Nothing. Nothing. I'm sure I could come up with something if I did pawpaws. Yeah. So you got a couple weeks of pawpaw season, if you can find them. And every other animal's trying to get them for the same reason. Uh, I'm, I'm really thinking here, like, you know, fox grapes are never really sweet. Ugh. Winter time, you got tea berries. We just call that wintergreen. They're a little sweet tasting, but they're not a lot of sugar. There's not a lot of them. I mean, there's not much. Honey. Oh, wait a minute. Honeybees aren't native to the United States. So that's gone. Figs. Oh, they're not native to the United States. See that? See how this works? So in nature, we're going to be exposed to sugar infrequently. So it's a trigger to say, hey, here's this incredibly calorically dense food, fill up on it. Which is fine if you can't do it every day. But if you can do it every day, hmm, think about it. That's why we need to be really careful with you know these substitutions and what have you. Um, next up, Carl says, where can you get insurance to cover claims related to selling food, items such as eggs, chickens, turkeys, From your homestead, I'm interested in selling eggs and chickens. However, I'm concerned about a person who buys a dozen eggs claiming they became sick eating one. Such a lawsuit would be expensive to defend. The income from selling eggs wouldn't be that much, and it seems that it would be a lot of risk from Joe Public egg buyers making this type of claim, which leads me to not selling eggs and chickens. Do you ever, did you have insurance when you sold duck eggs? Would you cover this type of claim? If so, where did you purse it? How much was it? If not, how did you deal with the risk of someone who would make this type of claim and invoke, uh, involve you in a lawsuit? Carl, welcome to the big boy world where we have to decide whether we want to take a risk or not. And so let me give you the first answer. What you would do, you would contact your insurance agent. And if you don't know your insurance agent on a first name basis, you probably need a new insurance agent. Because a good insurance agent would have never let that happen in the first place unless you told them to piss off, in which case you should probably talk to them. You should probably explain your situation. And then you're going to have to understand that most insurance agents take your words and then try to get a policy with your words. And sometimes changing your words changes whether or not you can get a policy or how much a policy will cost. When we had, we, so we did have insurance for the Permaethos Farm in West Virginia for a variety of reasons. And when we said it was a, a permaculture farm, they didn't even want to give us insurance. So when we said it was an organic farm, we had no problem getting insurance. Just changing that one word because they didn't understand the word. So I would go over this with your insurance agent and say, what do you have? What would you recommend? And that doesn't mean buy what they tell you, but take a look at it. Here's my, my viewpoint. I think if you're selling eggs, right? If you're selling eggs, you cannot possibly make enough money to justify the cost of an insurance policy to sell eggs. It's not doable. When we sold eggs, did I have insurance on the, on the eggs we sold? No. Nope. Nope. It was more important to me to be a supplier of that product than to protect myself from being sued. For what? A bad egg? What's the and, and, you know, here's the thing. We have become so sensitive to litigiousness, because there is a lot of it in our society. We actually think that it was like people just, oh, where can I go buy an egg and pretend I got sick? Right? So a person has to actually get sick. So what is the risk of actually getting sick from an egg? 
right? And then how do you handle it? Remember, just because somebody sues you doesn't mean they get anything. And in some instances, the more you have, the more at risk you are, especially the more you have that is accessible, right? So this is something you have to decide on your own, but I think you need to get a price from an insurance agent because where you are and what you're doing and who whatever you have as an insurance company is going to have a, a, a big impact on whether or not that's you know available or whether or not it makes sense. And you may decide, I don't want the risk, so therefore I'm not going to engage in the activity. Or you may engage in the activity with people that you know that you trust. Right? I mean, think about the risk a drug dealer takes. Any one of your customers could be a cop. How do they mitigate that risk? Right? I mean, you, you, you kind of you, you kinda have to always look at, put it in a different way. As an agorist, an anarchist, right, you build risk into your equation. And so either the activity covers the risk or the activity is not a good activity to be involved in. And you've got to decide whether or not that's true for yourself. But um, I was selling 12, 20, uh, yeah, 110 to 120 dozen eggs a month when we had our large flock, at least, probably closer to 150 most months. Big months. Um, never got a lawsuit. Never was really worried about a lawsuit. Um, and the majority of our business we sold to restaurants. And so their kitchen practices were going to mitigate risk to begin with. Like, you know, I'm just going to say, like, people just don't get sick from eggs in the United States. We just don't have people getting sick from eggs unless you're eating, like, dirty, nasty eggs raw. With bad handling practices. So if you handle things properly, if you do things properly and document what you do, if you do have to defend yourself, and then decide whether or not you want to take the risk or not, and then see what your insurance agent has to say. All right, because they might have some sort of umbrella policy or something that can work for you. I don't know. Um, hi, Jack. This is from Bianca. I love your show. I'm a new listener who's planning on uh, stages of – I am in the planning stage of uprooting from New York City – Somewhere out west, not sure likely where yet, to start a homestead. I'm learning about storing food, but I'm aware I should be stocking them now. But I also feel like logistically moving food stores across the country will not work out. Well, any advice? Thank you. Um, so when I moved from Texas to Arkansas, and then from Arkansas back to Texas, but specifically the move uh, to Arkansas, it sucked. However, the Arkansas house was a bug-out location at the time, and it was fully stocked. It was designed so that we could have loaded up the two trucks and the dogs and gone up there and not gone anywhere for a few months at least um, and not done without anything. So then <laughs> we consolidated into that place, and then we moved here, and we sold that place. So we had to bring everything here. Oh, my God, it sucked. Somebody commented on it and said, I read prepper and moving in the same sentence, and I almost threw up because they had been through it as well. So you're correct. Like overburdening yourself prior to a move is usually a bad idea. So what do you do? Well, one thing you could do to is ensure your ability to operate until you move. So if you made a list, because I'm thinking if you live in New York City, you don't have an abundance of storage space anyway. Figure out what your target is. Like, I know you don't know exactly where yet, but you have to have some sort of a timeline. Let's say, I want to be out of here in six months. So then you take the items that you can store that will fit well, 
that don't require refrigeration that you're going to use for those six months, stock those, and then you're burning out your inventory. And if then if you have to punt your departure date, you bulk up on that inventory again. You start to develop the skill set of prepping with food storage. Because, yeah, if you stack your apartment to the roof with storable food, it's going to be just more. It will cost more than even the cost increase six months from now to move all that food. So I would put, since you know you want to move, I'd put the majority of your effort into getting the move done. And I'd let go of this. And this is another danger that comes from getting into prepping. Most people, when they get into prepping, they pick a thing. And it becomes the thing that they need to be prepared. And on some levels, this is good because if they, if they do it right, kind of like a Swiss Army knife approach, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this regular blade and use it. And when I get done, I'm going to close it and pull out the fish scaler and scale the fish, right? Um, if they do it that way, so they kind of like beef up the food stores and say, okay, now what? Water, okay. What happens a lot, though, is people get so focused on one thing that they prepare only that thing. With guys, a lot of times it's guns and tactical shit. I have some fam, like secondary, second, second tier family people that like every time we talk, they, oh, I'm a prepper man. I love what you do, and on and on and on. And like all they talk about is their guns. I got this gun, and I put this Timmy trigger in it, and he just, you know. And I think all that stuff's cool, but I'm thinking you're dead, dude. If we have the kind of collapse you're thinking of, you're done. You're gonna starve to death, and the first time you go out and try to steal something with that gun, somebody's gonna put a bullet between your eyes and kill you. You're not gonna make it. Now, I know that, that Bianca's not in that situation because we're talking about food. But it's the same kind of thing. It's one-dimensional. And most likely what's happened is something's lit a fire in your ass, and you know you're exposed. So you want something to make the anxiety go away. And your methadone, right, is food. This is the thing that I know I can do. It makes the most sense. And it does make, for almost everything out there, it makes the most sense. You're going to eat it anyway. Right? If you want to peg down the anxiety a bit, right, and you just want to make sure you're going to eat, go fill one five-gallon bucket with white rice. Go one, fill one five-gallon bucket with, you know, um, wheat. And go feed one five-gallon bucket with beans. Sounds like you're a single person. That is not a great way to live, but it will keep you alive for a long time. Now you've added three buckets, right? Maybe you fill one with macaroni loaves. Fill them up till they're only about a half inch from the top. Go to the sporting goods store and get a package of hand warmers. They'll probably be on clearance now that hunting season's over. Open up the package, throw one hand warmer in the five-gallon bucket, put the lid on it. You're going to have to cut the lid off, by the way. Why would you put the hand warmer in there? It's a giant oxygen absorber. Now you've got four buckets. You've got mostly a complete protein, complete-ish protein. It is survival gruel, but you can get by with it. You know, you have a couple boxes of salt to go along with it, and you'll be all right. You know, you'll get bored, but you'll be all right. Now you've got this security blanket and focus on getting the hell out of New York City. I wouldn't even do the buckets. I'm giving you an option so that you can kind of scratch that itch. There's so much to preparedness, but it's really about risk assessment. And this is the big thing. So 
If you're going to move west from where you are, your risk assessment is going to dramatically change. Things that are you know, most potentially a disaster in New York City are probably less potentially a disaster in, I don't know, Arizona. I don't know where West means. I mean, West is, everything's West of New York City, right? West is Pennsylvania, right? Like, but you'll have some significant changes um, to your risk assessment when you move. The beauty of the food is it will always be part of your plan. Food and water will always be part of your plan. You know, water is heavy, it's bulky, it's a pain in the ass transport, but since whenever you're moving you'll have a sink, you could have like a bunch of jugs of water and just dump it out and give the jugs away or something like that when you move, if it doesn't make sense to move them with you, which you probably won't. But this is common, and it's something people do. I'm glad you're thinking about it. Don't take anything I've said as a criticism. Just focus on the move. You've got time. The world's not going to end between now and, and, and next month. Now, if by someday you mean two years from now or more, then you've got to go ahead and prepare like you're not going anywhere. So I'm assuming that you're in a six-month timeline here with my advice. This one comes in from Missoula Mike. He says, how do you deal with vegetable thieves? Over the last several seasons, I've had an increasing issues with people stealing vegetables in my garden. I live in a middle-income suburban area in the small city of Missoula, Montana, population 70,000. I have a community garden plot and a few blocks away and some container gardening near my rented duplex. Every year I've had some losses from theft, but in 2020 I more than lost half my garden's products people taking my stuff. It's not a high-crime area. Last year I even set up a game camera with audio to catch the thief, only discovers not one thief but many. From the video, it seems like every third person who walked by felt it was just okay to help themselves. One older lady with a friend whom I overheard telling her not to take things that didn't belong to her, and the old lady just chuckled and said something defective. Oh, they won't even notice. They have plenty. Now I don't have... Now I don't have to go to the store later. Police basically laughed at me. Fencing would be impractical. Video cameras and posting signs had no effect. Eventually, the trail camera was stolen. I'm at my wit's end. Should I even bother with a garden this year? Thanks, Missoula Mike. So, Mike, one thing I know that grows really well in um, your neck of the woods uh, that a lot of people aren't aware of what it is and is a great edible, if you know what you're doing when you harvest it, is stinging nettles. If it was me, if it was me, I might go ahead and just plant some stinging nettles kind of around the periphery. And, you know, if you wear a long sleeve shirt and gloves when you're working on your other parts of your garden, it won't bother you. But guess what's going to happen to people that put their hands on that stuff? Another option would be, you know, a little five-mile electrical box and just run some electrical wire, you know, some f fencing and a grounder. You know, I mean, I know that that could get stolen, too. You might have to be clever about how you do that. Planting things that don't really look... I mean, I bet you they're stealing things like peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that. But this is this is an example of where this type of thing is going to happen, right? We talked about earlier how, like, this idea that the, the hordes are going to go out and, and steal everything from your, your garden in your backyard. Notice what he has. He has a rented duplex near his rent, uh, uh, some container gardens near his rented duplex. But he also has a community garden plot. So these are like out and about, away from where they can be observed. And people do have this feeling of entitlement. And, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a good answer here. This has never been an issue for me, right? Um, the only thing that this can make me think of is the guy that, had somebody jump his fence and was ripping leaves off ochre because he thought it was pot. That was a great one. Um, 
I don't see getting into major confrontations over this. I do wonder what would happen if, you know, you did know who it was and you said, hey, why do you think it's okay to do this? But then again, I don't know that I even want that level of a confrontation. What that kind of escalated confrontational attitude makes me think of is like this, this, the, this couple that was just executed in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago over an argument that had something to do with snow shoveling. They started screaming at each other. The husband and wife were screaming at the guy. The guy they were screaming at was, was clearly a loose cannon himself, goes in his house, comes back with a pistol, shoots both of them. They're both laying on the ground. The woman's screaming, you son of a bitch, you shot me, you piece of shit, you shot me. And the guy goes back in the house and a bit later comes back out with a rifle and finishes them both off over snow shoveling. So you definitely don't want this level of, of, of conflict here. But I guess, like, like I said, one of the things you could do is plant things that are not generally what people recognize as food so that they're less likely to steal it. Um, signs you said did nothing. Sounds like you got a bad area to be operating in. I don't know. Um, but a perimeter of electrical shock wire might make an impact. Again, you might come back, though, and somebody might smash it to pieces because they're angry. I, I, I don't know. Does anybody else in the audience have any ideas on this one? Uh, I, I'm really not sure here. Um, this might just not be the, the location to be doing this at. And then... I don't know. I mean, I guess the other thing would be maybe the community garden approaches the solution where there's so much community that the community becomes self-policing. That would be another thing to possibly look at long term. Uh, this one comes from Jim. He says, how much does egg production drop off in the winter for ducks? Details. I've been looking at higher production egg laying duck breeds. The hatchery noted that duck egg production dropped off more than chickens in the winter. That surprised me as I thought chickens dropped off more. After all, how much lower than zero can you get? Maybe I misunderstood her. Maybe she didn't have spoke. I just know that with everything, it depends. Anyways, I thought I'd get it from the mouth of a redneck heavy duck farmer. In addition, to, I'm in Ohio, so I think my production would drop off more than yours. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, maybe. Um, the trigger for drop-off is light hours, not temperature. Ducks don't lay less in the winter directly because it's cold. They lay less in the winter directly because there's less light, They, they evolve that way because laying eggs when it's five below zero is not a good idea for duck reproduction, right? Um, do chickens or ducks drop off more? I'm going to say it's similar, but ducks are probably less is a total. However, ducks are less likely to have as much fertility per egg as chickens do. So let's say that you're getting 20% of your eggs that you get at peak. Because I've never seen zero out of birds in the winter. I just have, unless they're older, right? Chickens or ducks. But let's say you're getting 20%. So with chickens, you're probably getting 20% of your hatch that you normally would get, which is at about 100% of eggs. Like almost every chicken egg I've ever put in an incubator hatches. Ducks, I end up with more like 60% hatch. So if you get a drop-off and a low hatch rate, you, you kind of have a double sink there going on. Um, it's also the case that different breeds have different attitudes about different times of year. So you might find it's not that hard to get rowans, but it's hard to get Welsh harlequins. Different breeds have different demand curves. You know, when people want them, et cetera. And just remember that, like, going late winter into early springs when everybody buys. 
So I don't think the drop-off is, is that dramatically different. I think the ability to produce as a hatchery is, is just lower in ducks as a whole. Uh, Tom says, can I use coffee grounds as a nitrogen source? And he explains how uh, this is a highly available item. It is. Uh, he says it's a good source of nitrogen, but, was that, is, but is that more or less an Internet myth? Um, everything that's organic, when it breaks down, will have some nitrogen yield in the soil. Everything. In general, though, compostables fall into two things. And, and, and it's not the right term, but it just happens to work out here. Greens and browns. And greens are more your wets. So, yeah, grass and leaves would be greens and browns, classically. That's probably why they, everybody says that. But, you know, when you have all your chopped up vegetables and stuff like that, leftover leaves, uh, banana peels, all that crap, those are all greens. They're higher in nitrogen. And then all your dry product is higher in carbon. And your nitrogen-carbon bond is where you get your, your breakdown. So you're more of a carbon source. So you don't have a real high-yielding nitrogen when it comes to coffee grounds. What you have is a really great organic, and I'm not using that in the words of the government, but in the words of living things, organic biomass that's free and available. They do tend to be a bit acidic compared to a lot of other stuff. In general, that's not a problem. Most soil in the, in the United States is a bit too alkaline anyway. Like, so I'll take all the acid I can get here. It'll never change what we've got at its core. It's just too much of a, an alkaline nature. Even our rain's alkaline here. Um, so that's not a problem. I do think you can have too much tannic acid. You can have too much of anything. If you say, you know, well, Jack, can I use uh, oak leaves as, as mulch? Sure. Can I use too much? Sure. You can cover the thing where it can't get light anymore, right? So anything can be too much. The big thing about coffee grounds is earthworms and other soil creatures Eat them. So to me, the biggest value in spreading um, coffee grinds is it makes more worm poop. And then the other thing that's, like I think, really advantageous with it is, yes, worms eat them. Not much else seems to. I could be wrong, but I've never like pulled back leaves where I put coffee grinds and saw like, like a whole bunch of earwigs or something feeding on them. Um, definitely like rodents. Like if you know, if you think about anything that would have taste buds and like something that would eat what you eat, probably wouldn't eat it. So like I throw coffee grinds into my compost with my chickens. They dig through it. I'm sure that it attracts things that they eat, but they don't eat the coffee. They incorporate it into the mix. And so I would use coffee grinds one of two ways. I've done both. Now that I have birds to do the work, I use it. I just throw it in their compost. It just becomes part of the whole compost mix. When I didn't have that going on, and I'd be doing some composting, really long, slow, lazy composting. I used garbage cans with holes drilled in them and just filled them up. And then when one was full, I started filling another one. When that one was full, I started filling a third one. And by that time, the first one was compost. Right? That's that's kind of how I used to do it. And so I had a, I had sometimes I would have coffee grinds, and when I would just go out. I just pull mulch back in various places and sprinkle them around and cover it up. And that would attract soil life. And you could put it on top of the mulch even if you really wanted to. I mean, it's, it's not that important. But to me, that's how I would use it one or the other. So either put it into your compost system or spread it underneath your mulch. Or just spread it out in the gardens and near tree areas. And all. It's, still just, it's just more organic matter, and that's generally never a bad thing. I wouldn't try to build an entire compost on it. 
Now, if I had a worm farm, if I could farm worms without having it turn into a fire ant farm, I, I don't know that you could ever feed worms too much coffee grinds. They, they eat the hell out of it. Um, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I grew worms for fishing. It was one of my little teenage side hustles. Because I was like, wait a minute. People go down to the corner store and they pay a dollar for a dozen worms? And I'm thinking every time it rains, I go out with a freaking flashlight and pick up worms. Like off the ground, just pick them up. Every 12 of those could be a dollar. So then I learned, you know, how to basically set up a worm farm. I set up a worm farm down in the basement in the shanty, which is like a shed. But it was really like a the first house on the property is what it was. And uh, I had this worm farm, and I fed them mostly coffee. I fed them coffee grinds, uh, ground-up leaves, and any food stream waste. And I just basically had like a thing you could come and – it was just like friends and family. Like, like, you know, how do you do things? You deal with friends and family, and there was basically just a jar, and you took a, a thing of worms, and you left a dollar in the jar. You know, and it didn't make me a lot of money, but it was it was extra money. And then I always had worms for myself, right? And it was kind of cool. It was right next to the, the beer machine that you had to put a dollar's worth a quarter in to get a Milwaukee's best out of. But that's a story for another day. I'm sure the Statue of Limitations is up on that, so maybe one day I'll tell you. I just want to finish with this today. I, I thought it was important, given all the things that are going on in the world, that we end on an up note. Never forget, folks, that problems are opportunities. Every time you hear about how bad things are going to get, you should be thinking, so what's, what's my answer to these problems? And you'll real quickly go, this is a lot of problems. I don't have an answer for all of them. And then you'll start to evolve your thinking and say, well, I don't need an answer to all of them, do I? I need an answer to one or two of them that I can provide. I am extremely excited about the absolute disaster between 2020 and 2030 in flux. Because I think that while it's going to have a lot of problems, it's going to be one of the times of the greatest opportunities for individuals to achieve things that's ever existed. Think about it this way. You go to a farmer 10 years ago and say, hey, look, you're depleting your fields. Um... This can't go on forever. Try this new thing called permaculture. And most of them would have been like, whatever, man. The government gives me a subsidy to grow corn and soy. Sometimes they pay me to not even grow anything. I do what the guy from the, the ag extension says. Everything works out. I don't have time for your shit. And that would be most of what you get an answer from. I'm not saying you wouldn't get that from most of them now, but I think there would be more of them that now have had like the last 10 years of brutal reality beginning to set in. That might be like, well, do you know anything about maybe it's not full on permanent, about no till? Like all of a sudden that's taking off. Right? And that's better. Or, you know, we can do earthworks and we'll call them, you know, USDA code 600 agricultural terraces and show you how the NRCS can give you money to do them and stop all this erosion that's happening and infiltrate this water so it doesn't flood again. And if they just had a flood last year, they're probably more open to it. Right? Like, you tell it, like, hey, it's going to rain so much, you're going to have a flood, it's going to wipe out your crop. Get out of here. Then it floods and wipes out their crop, and then they're open to it. When people have recently experienced hardship, that's when you can sell them a solution. 
And I don't necessarily always mean sell them as in, I have this, buy it. I mean selling an idea sometimes. I mean getting people on board with a new way of doing things. And if you think about it, this is exactly what the Great Reset's all about. Problems are coming. Let's use them to enact the things we want to control the world with. You can play their game too. For the things that you value. Right? That's what, I mean, that's what I've been teaching you guys for years. Like, okay, I will never be able to rape the tax code the way General Electric does. But I rape it pretty good. Okay? They made the rules. They made it so 90% of the tax code was how to get out of the 10 that says what you have to do. Maybe I can't, I cannot quite get to the gangster level that these corporations do where they make billions of dollars and pay no taxes. But I can make a lot of money and pay a little taxes. I've taken my piece my way. That's what this is gonna, this is gonna favor the bold. People that look out and say, what can I offer? And not necessarily, like, I'm all about agorism. I really am. But don't go, don't go looking to do something just because it's illegal or gray market. Like, if that lines up and it lines up, right? And then it makes sense and you're willing to take the risk and you figure you know what the risk is. You're not just going empty. Okay, fine. But the reality is what works? You know, right now would be a great time to find all of the local food producers in your area and do a food delivery service from local producers. Probably better than any time in human history. And it'll get harder to do, not because the need will go down, but because the number of people will go, you know what I should do? I had this van. <laughs> Let me tell you another thing. You want a business you can get into? How many people need shit delivered that doesn't come from Amazon or is prohibitively expensive on Amazon? They don't have a truck. If you own a truck and a trailer, odds are with, like, and you're anywhere near the, a, a reasonably populated area, just advertising, hey, if you need something for a fee, I'll go get it and bring it to you. I know a guy local to us right here. He's, he has a trailer. It's kind of like a cargo trailer that dumps, so he'll do dirt and mulch and stuff like that, appliances, anything that's bulky and kind of prohibitive to ship. If people need it now, he goes and gets it. That's all he does. He's an older guy. He's retired. He's got nothing else to do with his time. And I talked to him, and he's making pretty decent money. He's making pretty decent money doing that, right? Especially since it's... What kind of money do you think that is? Do you think people are like, you know what I need? I need you to bring me a water tank. Because I don't have a way to get it here. So I got it coming to the feed store down there. It's a 1,500-gallon tank. Can you go get it for me? Yeah, sure, I can go get it for you. Do you think that guy's like, I want to pay you with a uh, credit card? And most of his payments are going to be in cash, guys. You understand how that works, right? That's problem opportunity, right? The, 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 the people behind the oligarchy and the technocracy, they're all about problem, reaction, solution. They cause the problem, they know your reaction advanced, and they present you the solution. I'm just suggesting that you do that in a far more proactive way. They created a problem. Here's an alternative solution for people who want an alternative solution. They want to remain in control and do business locally. There's going to be so much opportunity in the next decade there's opportunity staring you in the face right now 
And everybody seems to be under this impression that waiting until the pandemic is over, and then it will get better. I'll finish fully today with another short story. Back when I used to be a consultant, and I did consulting on business operations and practices, marketing, messaging, whole thing. Tip the tail, right? Go in, first thing, spend a day in your business talking to people. Many times it's better if they don't know who I am and they're not, they're not telling me what I want to hear. They don't know that, like, I might tell you that they said these things, right? A lot of times I might just say, hey, I'll, can I have a desk? I'll do some work. Don't tell anybody who I am. And I just sit there and listen to people talk to each other. Get a feeling for the vibe of the company. Then I would get all the people in a company, right, to sit down and tell me what their company did. And I'd often find that nobody in the company could tell me what the company did, so I'd have to figure out what the company did. And I'd put together an entire package for them. This is how to get your company to move forward. There was one thing, and I didn't care if like some you know, third-tier person at the bottom said this so much, other than where is it coming from. But there was one thing that a key decision-maker, or specifically an owner president, CEO, etc. If that company could say, it would make me stop and go, you don't owe me any money, but I'm going to leave now. I can't help you. And it's unethical for me to continue this exercise. And that was, everything will be okay when things pick up. I knew the minute those words were spoken by people that were in charge of a company, that I cared more about their company than they did. That mindset is death to a company. I can just look, this company's a zombie company that doesn't know it's dead yet. It really is. This, this, this company is going to be bankrupt in a year. And I don't want to be attached to it. I don't want to be part of it. When things pick up is loser language. Right now is the best time to move. And what you're going to hear from the same people that have this mindset of, well, when things pick up. Six months from now, a year from now, whenever. Boy, I wish I would have done that back then when that guy did it. Now is the time. Problems are opportunities. When have we had more problems than we do right now? now most people alive, you can't remember when we had more problems than we do right now. So we've never had more opportunity than we have right now. Do something with it. Make something out of it. Make, make something happen, folks. There's a thousand little businesses you could start tomorrow morning. Pick one. Give it a shot. If it doesn't work, do something else. Sooner or later, you'll figure it out. With that, let's wrap things up with our item of the day. Remember that you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you will help us out with the work that we do. Today's item of the day is the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. Uh, I bring this book around a lot. And if you've noticed, it's pretty much the only book on herbal medicine that I've ever uh, recommended. And it's not because it's the only good one. It's because it is the only one you really need to form the foundation to the level that most people will ever build for themselves. Um, if you take this book... Use it as designed, and it comes with 
a series of pro like at each the end of each thing like now we're going to make a tincture now we're going to make an ex you know an extract now we're going to make a salve if you go through this book and you do the little projects in it it is better in my opinion than any herbal course i've ever looked at for the person that doesn't know anything and wants to be you know decently able to make medicines from their own backyard and woodlands it is Again, if I could have one book, it would be this one. It's it's just that good, and it is. If if you don't have it, at some point you may wish you did, because the knowledge in it is priceless, and the book costs twenty bucks. And think about it that way. Think about it. Buying this book is like buying an, a course in herbal medicine. And I'm guaranteeing you, no course that's available online for a hundred bucks is going to teach you what's in this book. If you'll follow it and do the work. Um, again, it's by a, an author named James Green. It's a fantastic book. Uh, also, remember, you can always support the show. How? Become a member. Use the discounts. Get your money back. And then uh, why wouldn't you stay a member if you can get the discounts every year? That's, that's the opportunity I made for myself, being able to sell you a product that paid for itself. They got you discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. Check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And remember, as always, not only do I take cash, uh, check money order by mail, take online payments through credit and debit cards, PayPal, etc. I also take cryptocurrency. You can, there's lots of ways to pay. I even take precious metal. I even take precious metal. That has to be done by U.S. mail. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is really a great one for where we finished with. Um, this is by Twisted Sister. It's from the 80s, and it's called Wake Up the Sleeping Giant. And... It's a very common theme to come from Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister, this kind of fight back, fight the system mindset. Um, but one of the lines in this, we have the numbers. Remember what I said yesterday? I don't know if it was on Miyagi Mornings or the show, but I talked about how paradigms fall on the show. I think, it, so I think that's what it was. And how in Rome, there was a time where the Roman Senate considered making the uniform of slaves a standard uniform so people could recognize who the slaves were and who they weren't so that your 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 position your cast lot in life was a known that's a slave so if you witness that person doing something slaves ain't supposed to do hey you're a slave dude you need to act like a slave and be like a slave right but why Did the Roman Senate decide, well, maybe we shouldn't do that? Was it like, oh, do you think somebody was all woke back then? Like, It's not right to uh, offend people who identify as slaves. It wasn't that, right? It was, wait a minute, how many slaves do we have? Oh, we have more slaves than we have citizens. Hmm. And we have more citizens than we have soldiers. Oh, <laughs> hmm. A lot of soldiers aren't necessarily really loyal. They like getting paid and being part of things. Hmm. Maybe it's better they don't know how many of them there are. Things have not changed since then. Things have cha not changed since 1987 when D. Snyder put this song out. We have the numbers. The problem is we don't see it that way. And they've done a great job of dividing us. What good is having the numbers when the majority wants to kill each other? To change things and to have the numbers actually work for us, we need to start figuring out 
what we really want in the world. And the way to do that and to build the numbers back up, I hate to put it this way, but largely it's writing people off. Like people are outraged right now that there are people that were outraged because Tom Brady won a Super Bowl during Black History Month against another quarterback who wasn't white. My, I'm not outraged about it. I don't even care. You're not part of like if that's you, you're not part of the solution. And if you're if you're the person tw like tweaking out about it, you're not part of the solution either. There's so many of us that even a a a a a, a part of us, if united, outnumbers them. Yeah, it's time to wake up the sleeping giant. Right? Let me tell you something else about that. There is having the numbers, but there's just having the guts. You can wake up the sleeping giant in waking up large numbers of people who work together as a community, but the most powerful giant you can wake is the one that sleeps in your chest, the one who's been convinced by society to remain quiet, to crawl inside. Don't just wake up the numbers. Wake up that giant within you. With that, it's been Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
some found 